0: Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 3rd, 2011. It's going to be an interesting program today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Uh, it's very important that they be documented and brought to your attention so that you can spend the time actually comparing what these folks are saying and compare it to God's Word. We do the preliminary work here at Fighting for the Faith. And many times I provide you with biblical commentary to the things that we are presenting to you, but ultimately it's your job to be the job of a Berean to compare even my biblical comparison to what God's Word Truly, teaches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, (laughs) I, I'm just the uh, the first step, if you would. But um, anyway, thanks for tuning in today. Today I've got an awkward thing that I've got to do, and this is something that I've been thinking about, praying about, and uh, and if you're familiar with the program, you're familiar with the Kindlegate uh, brouhaha. Um, What many of you don't know is is that there was a, a kind of a follow up brouhaha regarding. Me having uh, Frank Turk on uh, Fighting for the Faith, and I thought that was interesting to watch. But um, after the uh, the Dan Kimball event, one of the things I said that I would be doing from time to time is doing segments on the program entitled Misadventures in Dubious Discernment. And uh, my first installment of uh, Misadventures of, in Dubious Discernment it, it basically involved a critique of of the evidence and research brought forward by uh, Deb Dombrowski of Lighthouse Trails and Ingrid Schleter against Dan Campbell, today I'm going to be doing another installment of Misadventures in Dubious Discernment. This time, the focus of uh, my uh, my attention is going to be solely on Ingrid Schleter and her Crosstalk blog. Now, if you're all familiar with Ingrid Leader, Ingrid Leader is a radio host of the Crosstalk radio program, and she's very famous uh, uh, in the uh, online discernment uh, ministries camp, you know, in, in that arena for many years. She has been blogging about the things that are going wrong in the church, and she has actually done a the church a great service uh for her passion for the truth and exposing many of the lies that uh, have been been brought into the church long before uh you know some of the bigger names if you would uh were willing to weigh in Ingrid uh, you know stuck her head out on the chopping block and put her foot out on the limb and was willing to take the risk and uh, risk being shot at for basically saying, hey, listen, what Rob Bell is telling us ain't true. Uh, Rick Warren is twisting the Scriptures. Uh, Brian McLaren, he's teaching a false gospel. Ingrid has been on the forefront of uh, the uh, online discernment world for many years and has done a fantastic service to the body of Christ in the past for the work that she has done. Sadly, though, uh, I'm I, I, her and I have parted ways, and for good reason, um, I believe, because she has not been completely um, honest in her discernment work. And uh, even yesterday, she posted something that, unfortunately, I have to weigh in on and challenge her and the conclusions and the, and the inferences that are being drawn uh, from the work that she's done on her crosstalk blog. So I'm going to be doing another segment of Misadventures and Dubious Discernment. That'll probably take us up into the break. And then when we get back, we're going to uh, tune in to the latest installment from uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Uh, You're going to probably need um, a very large sheet of paper, um, several colored pencils, maybe a dry erase board. Um, uh, the ability to draw X's and O's and maybe connect dots. Uh, this this one's weird, but uh, worth passing along to you because uh, William Tapley is now a regular here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And then in hour number two, uh, I, I rather than waiting until next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play lecture number three uh, from Ted Donnelly's uh, four part uh, lecture series. On the doctrine of hell. I mean, it, I mean seriously. If we got three more weeks before Rob Bell's book comes out, I mean, it's kind of nice. I mean, we get to actually put out the biblical teaching in a very stark clarity before he even gets to say boo. So you know, I it's, you know, that's kind of one of the limitations about you know doing the marketing that he's doing and trying to to raise the brouhaha in order to sell the books. Well, you know, is that uh, well, we've got several weeks to. You know, just review what the Bible says, so that when he's when his book finally comes out, um, I'm sure that you know it'll be right in accord with Scripture, and there won't be anything to be concerned about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, taking advantage of the fact that we get the head start, not him. know uh, yeah, we're going to listen to uh, lecture number three, and thank you for all the positive feedback that we've been getting. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I was inundated with emails uh, from people who were uh, listening to the live stream, even before the podcast. Is up. basically saying that was a fantastic set of lectures and just very well done. Uh, we played parts one and two yesterday as as our light edition for the week, and so today we'll play part three and probably part four tomorrow. I mean, again, you know, I mean, poor, poor Rob Bell. I mean, he's stuck waiting for his book to come out, and we can just kind of talk circles around him. He'll kind of be late to the conversation. We might even be finished having it by the time his book comes out. So. With that, we're going to change gears, and I do not have a, um, I do not have music for this next section because I don't think that's really appropriate because um, there's nothing there's nothing lighthearted or jovial about this uh, this next part that, uh, this next thing that I have to do. But yesterday, Ingrid Schleeder on her Crosstalk blog posted a um, a blog post entitled "A Photo Says It All," and so does Twitter. A photo says it all and so does twitter now when i first read this piece i was um disappointed to say the least um and the reason why is because the way ingrid wrote this piece um you know it's kind of working off the old adage that a photograph is worth a thousand words and um and this was written in kind of uh supermarket tabloid style y'all familiar with the paparazzi And uh, and uh, some of the folks that do, you know, tabloid, you know, uh, tabloids for, you know, the 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 famous movie stars and uh, rockers and things like that. You know, they the paparazzi is always snapping photographs of them. And then some and then the tabloids snatch up so-called compromising uh, photographs and then write stories based, you know, kind of telling the story about the photograph. And sometimes what they say may or may not really be correct inferences. Uh, from the photograph. In this particular case, um, I'm going to make the strong case that uh, this is an example of tabloid discernment, uh, not the kind of discernment that, uh, that really edifies the body of Christ, but tabloid discernment on the part of Ingrid Schleter. Uh Here's what she wrote. She says, The seduction of the Reformed camp by Rick Warren continues apace. The Seduction of the Reformed Camp by Rick Warren continues apace. The tweet in the photo is by Steve Camp from last June. That's nine months ago. A man who spent a number of years exposing the purpose-driven false gospel only to do a 180-degree turnaround recently. The photo is of Reformed author and editor of Modern Reformation magazine, Michael Horton, with his arm around Rick Warren, a statue of John Calvin. Between them, note from the editor, please see Mike Horton's own account of his meeting with Rick Warren here. It was more than a photo op. Now, when I read this piece, when I read this piece and the way she phrased it, the way she framed the whole thing, I, I felt like, you know, I I should have been hearing dark, ominous music in the background, and, uh, and uh, in fact, I'm going to add a little bit of it just to uh, you know, to kind of show what what the flavor of, real, real flavor of this um, post is. Here we go. The seduction of the Reformed camp by Rick Warren continues apace. The tweet in the photo is by Steve Camp from last June, a man who spent a number of years exposing the purpose-driven false gospel, only to do a 180-degree turnaround recently. The photo is reformed author and editor of Modern Reformation magazine, Michael Horton, with his arm around Rick Warren and a statue of John Calvin between them. Please see Mike Horton's own account of his meeting with Rick Warren here. It was more than a photo op. I continue reading. It is clear that the term Reformed is about as meaningless as the term Evangelical. As Carl Truman points out in his small book, the real scandal of the Evangelical mind, the refusal by Evangelicals to stand for doctrinal distinctives in sound doctrine that can ignore the damage done by the the adoctrinal, unbiblical teachings of Rick Warren becomes equally meaningless. In fact, much of the Reformed world is in deep need of spiritual reformation itself, and an age of seemingly endless big-name conferences where lip service is paid to sound doctrine, there exists a political structure that often prevents the honest exposure of false teachers. In the heat of the battle, the reformed network closes ranks, and far too often the silence is deafening when it really matters. So, um, yeah, uh, last June, nine months ago, Michael Horton spoke at a meeting that was held, basically a lecture that was held as part of the Luzon conference, and it was held at Saddleback. And as a result of his attendance there, he was able to have a conversation with Rick Warren. And somebody snapped a photograph of Michael Horton and Rick Warren, and they had... their arms touching each other, with a photograph with a with a little statue of John Calvin between the two of them. Supposedly, this is to show that the term "reform" doesn't mean anything anymore. That Michael Horton is compromised. That what he you know that despite the fact that for years and years and years and years, he's been the editor of Modern Reformation magazine, has gone on the air on the White Horse Inn radio program to proclaim and defend the historic Christian faith, has been one of the most outspoken critics of the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement and the drivel that has become American evangelicalism. And all of that is supposedly overthrown, and, ethroned, and suspicion is cast on him, as a result of a single photograph that surfaced with him touching and looking like he's being friendly with Rick Warren. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, then you know that um, I sent out a a Facebook status update as well as a tweet, by the way, I still hate that word, Uh, earlier today where I asked a question. And the question I asked on my blog, if you want to see it, by the way, you can. The, um, my blog is letterofmark, U-S. Letter of Mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. At my blog, I asked the question, do photographs really say it all? Here's what I said. I'm working on a new installment of Misadventures and Dubious Discernment for an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith, and I'd like to ask a question of y'all. Do photographs really say it all? Now, let's pretend that Ronald Reagan was president today and that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were still locked in a perilous nuclear arms race. Now, the weird part about me saying all this is, um, is that I lived through this, so I know exactly what this felt like. I mean, I experienced this. And there's some of the younger folks listening to uh, Fighting for the Faith. You have no idea what we went through. (laughs) You've read about it, but you didn't experience it. Anyway, so we're and pretend we're still locked in a perilous nuclear arms race. But it was reported today that President Reagan and Premier Gorbachev had met with each other. And and the photos that I've posted below were the photographs that were released after their meetings. Now in I've posted two photographs. One photograph is of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in a really chummy uh handshaking pose. I mean, I mean they really actually these two guys look like they're just buddies. Okay? And then the uh the uh, second photograph below that is uh, of Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the older George Bush, not the younger guy, uh, standing uh, 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 it looks like on the Hudson River with the um, with the New York City skyline behind them. and uh, these guys literally look like they've just been out on the town and just had the friendliest of times, okay? So it, you know, so go back to what I said. Look, pretend Ronald Reagan was president today. The U.S. and Soviet Union are still locked in a perilous nuclear arms race. But it was reported today that President Reagan and Premier Gorbachev had met each other. And the photos I've posted below were the photographs that were released after their meetings. Based upon how nice and cordial and friendly president reagan was being with gorbachev would it be accurate to say that reagan had compromised his commitment to uphold the u.s constitution and that his friendliness towards the leader of the forces of evil in the world was sending the message to americans that communism is okay and then i just basically asked the question why or why not remember photographs say it all, according to Ingrid Schiller. Photographs say it all. But is that really true? If all I did was post some photographs of Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan being chummy with each other, would that prove that Ronald Reagan had compromised? Now, I want to read some of the uh, responses that my listeners gave. Great responses, by the way. Sir Brass, I don't. I guess that's a surname, it's a, this, an anonymous writer, writes, he said, I'd say that because the context is international diplomacy and considering what Reagan has said about the evil empire, that this is not compromise, but instead is standard diplomacy. Him being cordial is because that is how one plays the diplomatic game and how one shows that one is open to talks even if he has the firepower and the backbone to not give an inch, even if it costs millions of lives. It it shows that he's not a warmonger. Of course, I see the contrast that you're making between this and those who say you've compromised by daring to smile in photographs with emergent heretics. It's a valid criticism of them that they read too much into a picture. Sir Brass, I completely agree with you. But I like what you said specifically about the part about context and other uh, people who commented pointed that out too. David wrote, he says, do photos say it all? No, they don't. Pictures are moments in time that are out of context. Let me read that statement again cuz David is spot on here. Ph- Photographs or pictures are moments in time that are out of context. On top of that, everyone poses for pictures. For the photograph to be understood, the context of what else was said and done would then have to be documented as well. So in the above situation, unless one also reported on everything that was said between Reagan and Gorbachev, then the photo can be made to support just about anything. I, uh, um, I could... Uh, present an article that says Reagan is not upholding American beliefs and then use the photo to support my case. The obvious problem is, is that the photo doesn't tell us what was actually said between the two photos like the above are akin to preaching from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. David, I don't know your last name and I don't know what city you're from, but got to tell you, you know, you I'm going I I don't even know if I have the authority to do this, but I'm going to give you uh 3000 Table Talk radio points that and talk to um uh Brian Wolfmuller and um <laughs> and Evan Gagline to see what you can do with them. I I I have no idea what can be done with them, but uh, I just just for that brilliant comment uh, you, you get 3,000 Table Talk radio points. Okay, moving along. Susan writes, she says, hmm, pictures say, uh, they say a picture is worth a 1,000 words, but I think sometimes those words could be the wrong ones. Exactly. Exactly. So, coming back to the point that I was making. Ingrid, on her Crosstalk blog, Put a blog post up that said, a photo says it all. And then went on to explain how the photograph of Michael Horton looking friendly, being cordial with Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, somehow proves then that, well, he was, there's something wrong. The word reform doesn't mean anything anymore. And this is a sign that Rick Warren has actually infiltrated the reformed camp into the compromised bin or somehow show that this is proof that the reform, that the word reform doesn't mean anything or that Michael Horton doesn't stand for doctrinal distinctives. Why? Because a photograph is a moment in time. It is a, a, a snapshot of a, of a fraction of a second frozen in time and unless you put the rest of the context around it there's no way to know what really went on so since uh you know apparently Mike Horton according to Ingrid Schleter I mean this proves that there's you know because on her blog he said this was more than just a photo op well let's um Take a look at, um, well, what was said by um, Michael Horton regarding his meeting with Rick Warren in June of 2010. Here's what Michael Horton wrote on his blog. I had a great time at the Luzon Global Conversation held at Saddleback Church and hosted by its pastor, Rick Warren. It was a privilege to be part of a distinguished panel of evangelical leaders from a wide variety of backgrounds. Before the panel discussion, Rick Warren interviewed me for his Purpose Driven Network— In the first interview, he focused on my books and the work of the White Horse Inn. In the second, he focused on the question, what is the gospel? I appreciated the generous spirit in which Rick asked the questions and encouraged me to lay out the case we have for a new Reformation. It's great to be able to discuss our differences as well as our common convictions in a spirit of friendship as well as mutual challenge. Our mission at the White Horse Inn is to go to any forum that invites us where we have a chance to clarify what we are convinced is the proper message and mission of the church. Thanks for your prayers and for making such opportunities possible. May God continue to open doors for an ever wider hearing. Hmm. Doesn't sound anything like the way Ingrid flavored her blog post. Again, what she did is really more akin to the type of journalism you would see from the National Enquirer, and that's not appropriate for people who are defending biblical truth and the gospel. In fact, it flavors, it, 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 it casts such an unflattering light on Michael Horton that you know I think it actually crosses the line into dishonesty. Why? Because I know what Michael Horton actually said at the Luzon conference. Would you like to hear it? It just so happens I happen to have it with me. Michael Horton, in an installment of the White Horse Inn, actually posted, as part of the White Horse Inn radio program podcast, the things that he said at Saddleback at the Luzon meeting. And see if. What Michael Horton says is indicative of somebody who has lost the meaning of the word reformed, somebody who no longer can be trusted regarding doctrinal distinctives, or if what we're hearing is somebody boldly proclaiming the truth in an atmosphere which may not really actually be welcome to hear the things that he has to say. Here's um, soundbite number one from Michael Horton. Uh, again, you be the judge, but let's listen. Let's So let's take the photograph, that snapshot in history, that snapshot of a moment, and let's put it back into the fuller context of what was happening there at Saddleback Church. Here we go.
1: For example, in Brazil, uh, the Presbyterian Church of Brazil there is multiple times larger than any North American Presbyterian sister church with whom it's in relations. They have a 40,000 student body university, Mackenzie University, that most of us have probably never heard of. They turned it around from uh, it was basically on the precipice of just becoming another mainstream liberal university, and uh, they brought it back. Wow, that would be a nice book to write for us, how you do that sort of thing. Usually it goes the other way for us. Um, had lunch the other day with a pastor from Seoul who is remarkably blessed with 2,000 members, but people who are growing in depth, not just in breadth. And I asked them, you know, what is this? And a lot of their comments come down to, we're no longer taking every movement and fad that comes from North America.
0: Okay, listen carefully to what Dr. Horton is saying. Keep in mind, he's saying this at Saddleback Church, which is kind of like ground zero for every marketing fad that runs through the church.
1: We believe that we have to dig our roots more deeply into the historic Christian faith. And when we do that, we find that we are more one with Christians around the world who confess the same faith in a very profound way than we are uh, when we get broken up by American marketing into niche demographics, which I think is one of the greatest challenges to evangelism in our own churches, much less the rest of the world.
0: Okay, now, did you notice that little comment that he made about how breaking Americans up into niche markets is actually a hindrance to evangelism? That is a direct, direct attack. A direct statement against the very foundation and core principles of purpose-driven evangelism. And Mike Horton had the boldness to say that at saddleback church. Rather than sounding like somebody who had compromised, rather than saying sounding like somebody who had who, who had allowed himself to be co-opted by Rick Warren, here we've got um, Michael Horton actually torpedoing and critiquing and casting aspersions on the very evangelism techniques that Rick Warren is most famous for, and Mike Horton did it at Saddleback Church. Okay, next, I'm going to play for you the next soundbite the The question that is asked, and then Michael Horton's response, because I want you to hear the question, because it's it's a question about social justice and how that plays into things, and I want you to listen to Michael Horton's response. Here we go.
2: John Huffman mentioned earlier that when he was a student and the Luzon movement was kind of getting started, he really hoped that this generation would pay more attention to justice issues. And now his concern is that the young generation is so focused on justice that they're not thinking as much about evangelization. Uh, It is clearly a strong value among younger evangelicals, but some sociologists did a book recently called Souls in Transition about the state of the sort of 20-somethings in the world today. And here's a quote from the book that caught my attention. They write, quote, Few emerging adults are involved in community organizations or other social change groups or movements. Not many care or know much of substance about political issues and world events. Almost none have any vision of a common good. So despite all the rhetoric, apparently, around social justice and compassion and these things, sociologists are saying they're not really doing anything about it. So my question is this. Are young adults in the church any different? And is this whole thing just a fad that's going on with the young generation, or do you think there's something more rooted about it? Is it more substantive?
1: Well, when you look at uh, sociologists like Christian Smith at Notre Dame telling us not only on issues like social justice is there kind of thinness, But in terms of even our commitments as Christians, um, he says that uh, most people growing up in evangelical churches today differ not significantly from those who don't grow up in churches at all in terms of what they believe and why they believe it. And, of course, this has been confirmed by all sorts of uh, different studies, but he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Evangelical? Yes, evangelicals. He says, it it is the default setting of young people in this culture. And he said, the only thing that we can conclude is that youth pastors, pastors, and parents have defaulted on their responsibilities to this generation. It's been all play, all fun, all hype, all Jesus is great, let's get on our skateboard. And not what a lot of younger people are actually asking for. Look, this is a tough world. I'm not sure I can hang on unless I know what I believe in and why. Something that's a little bit stronger than an experience that I had five years ago when I have lots of experiences these days. It's easy for people to get into fads. Theological fads, spiritual fads, justice fads, political fads. But I think we've got to ground people again. It used to be... Uh, if we have students come to our seminary from Nigeria, they are clearer and more insistent about catechism. We use the same catechism in different languages. And they're much more serious about it. And so you know, their commitment is actually something that I think most of us as Americans would say cannot possibly grow the church quickly. And yet it's growing it in depth and in breadth. And I don't think that the church ought to be a justice a peace and justice center, I think the church should be the salinization plant that that incubates, grows, and matures and waters Christians so that they can go out and do things like medical missions and in their various callings in the world. It's out in the world where we love and serve our neighbor. In the church, we're actually made Christians, so we can do that.
0: That was soundbite number two. That sounded like Michael Horton's pretty standard fare from his uh, White Horse Inn radio program and a very sober and yet sharp critique of the very methodologies you can think of Rick Warren's global peace plan if you would the the very methodologies and ideas that Rick Warren has pioneered there at Saddleback Church and Michael Horton boldly clearly succinctly challenged all of that at Saddleback. And you can tell by the audience response in the audio, but you see it really clearly when you look at the video, uh, that um, many people in the audience were taken aback and not exactly warm to the ideas that Horton was putting out especially the crazy talk that he was giving about how the church needs to be the place where we catechize people and we need to focus in on that in depth and breadth rather than the moralistic therapeutic deism stuff and he said that at Saddleback now does that sound like somebody who's compromised with Rick Warren does this sound like somebody who who is part of you know basically you know a toehold for Rick Warren's invasion into the reformed camp Hardly. Here's soundbite number three. I'll play the question and then Dr. Horton's response.
2: So, going back to what John said earlier, we have this generation that is just drawn into these issues for good reason compassion, they understand God's heart for the orphan, for the widow, for the suffering, and all. What about the proclamation of Jesus? How do we make sure that that doesn't get lost? in our efforts to do these good things that we still keep that front and center and take the flack for that when that comes at us how do we do that
0: (laughs) here comes horton's response
1: yeah i think that it, it isn't still important for us to distinguish between justice and proclamation because you know there's a lot of unhealthy talk today about living the gospel being the gospel doing the gospel jesus christ is the only gospel he fulfilled the law in our place, bore the curses for our not having fulfilled it, and rose again as the first fruits of the whole redemption of the world order.
0: Now Notice, in answering the question about how do we not lose the message of the gospel, Mike Horton just gave us a, a correct biblical synopsis of what the gospel is at Saddleback.
1: That is the gospel, and it's wonderful good news because it's not about me, and it's not about my plans for making the world a better place.
0: Did you hear that? Let me play that again, because it's the seeker-driven, purpose-driven guys who've been taught by Rick Warren who continually talk about making the world a better place, and Michael Horton just went the exact opposite and said something that is completely against the stream of everything that Saddleback says and preaches.
1: That is the gospel, and it's wonderful good news because it's not about me, and it's not about my plans for making the world a better place. Uh, I think it's interesting, James Hunter's recent book, he sort of points this out, people who've tried to transform the world have ended up often not transforming the world, but Christians who are transformed by the renewing of their minds in the churches, where the main thing is to really understand the truths of the gospel and the whole breadth of the Christian faith to mature in the deep truths of Scripture and Christian practice, love and justice toward neighbor go out then and live as Christians, live as salt and light, or are more likely to go and live as salt and light in the culture and make more of a difference. You think of the Reformation. The Reformers didn't set out to change Europe. They set out to recover the the central truths of the Gospel. And as a result, there was a, probably the most enormous religious change, transformation uh, in Europe in its history. It was re-evangelized. And I just think that we keep running away from the gospel in the name of mission. Sometimes talking about mission and being missional and being the gospel and not talking about the gospel, Jesus Christ, so that our our children and grandchildren and we ourselves really are deepened in it. We take the gospel itself for granted, I think, in the church today.
0: So that's what Michael Horton said at the um, Luzon meeting at Saddleback Church. Is it clear from what he said at Saddleback Church that the term Reformed is about as meaningless as the term Evangelical? Is it true that because of what Michael Horton said, not the photograph, but what he said, that there is a refusal by evangelicals to stand for doctrinal distinctives that has rendered the term meaningless? Or was what Michael Horton said at that, is what he said consistent with somebody who actually gives meaning to the word reformed and puts the gospel back into the term evangelical? You see, a photograph doesn't say it all. Photographs have to be put in context. And you know what? I know Michael Horton. I've known, I've known Horton for more than two decades. And the one thing I can say about Michael Horton is that he's nice. And that he's polite. But the other thing I can tell you with absolute certainty about Michael Horton is that that guy will not give a doctrinal inch or even millimeter of ground to somebody who is teaching heresy. He is anything but a compromiser. He has been a bold defender of the biblical gospel and an outspoken critic of the seeker-driven and purpose-driven silliness that has overrun the church, and week after week after week after week, month after month, year after year, he has provided sound, sober, well-argued, biblically-supported critiques of the things that are going wrong in the church and, and has laid the blame for many of those methodologies and problems at the foot of Rick Warren. And when given the opportunity to speak at Saddleback Church, he did not term ter, take the term reformed and compromise in such a way that that term no longer means anything. Nor did he meet, take the word evangelical and make it to be absolutely nothing because he refused to have doctrinal distinctives. And anyone who would be so irresponsible as to lump him in to people who do not stand for doctrinal distinctives or would lump him in with people who are doctrinally compromised has no business doing discernment work and really should move to South America and take up banana picking as a second career. So when you put that photograph back into context, does it say it all? No, it doesn't. It doesn't say it all at all because there's a bigger story. And what's really sad and tragic Is that Ingrid Schleeder, who is somebody who is an outspoken person on the internet, who is doing discernment work, for whatever reason, didn't tell the whole story. And instead drew inferences and conclusions from that photograph that cannot be supported when you put the photograph back in context. That's not discernment work. That is supermarket tabloid journalism. That's the kind of stuff that the National Enquirer does. That's the kind of things that you would expect to see from somebody like Perez Hilton, but not somebody who is defending and proclaiming the biblical truth and the biblical gospel against the errors and heresies that have overrun the church. Ingrid, you have done a disservice to Michael Horton and to the body of Christ. This is not discernment work. This is something completely different. You need to repent and be forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. The truth is too important to be defended with lies, half-truths, out-of-context photographs, and conclusions that cannot be drawn when you put things back into context. Twisting and taking things out of context is the very technique used by those we are critiquing. It is not a method that we have the freedom to employ in defending the truth. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
4: Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jet. damn! I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
3: Uh, what?
4: You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
3: Uh, I I couldn't do that. <clears throat>
0: I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition.
3: Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Our chief ex- weapons are. Our chief weapons are um. Purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay,
4: stop, stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose. blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like, hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program? That's enough! Now, how do you plead?
0: Well, we're we're innocent.
4: innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that!
0: All right, we're back. Warning, photos are moments in time. They have to be put back into context in order to correctly draw the right inferences that are being made by them. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, time to move along. It's been a while since we've uh, we've done a um, third, third eagle of the... Uh, Uh, of the Apocalypse uh, update. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to uh, play this song. Here we go. I feel fine. Bum, bum, bum. All right, let's kill the music. All right, so uh, yeah, that that can mean only one thing. It's uh, time to listen into the latest installment of um the uh, William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Okay, for this segment, you are going to need. Um, in fact, you might want to run down to like your local. Butcher store, you 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 know what? Have you ever seen butcher paper? I mean, it's huge. I mean, we're talking about sheets that are just ginormous. I mean, you can actually. I mean, they they can uh, you can use them as a tablecloth. Uh, You need that a piece of duct tape, uh, at least three to eight uh, different colored uh, markers, uh, maybe a couple of uh, uh, colored pencils, um, some super glue, and a um, scissors and, and an exacto knife. Okay, yeah, so. When you have all of that, uh, then uh, then here uh, you're ready then to listen to him explaining the Middle East crisis in Bible Prophecy Part 1. Here is uh, William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse.
3: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. On this program, I want to correct some terrible misinformation being put out there on YouTube from the false prophets. And that is that the chaos in the Middle East is going to lead up to the Gog-Magog War. The fact is, the chaos in the Middle East is part of World War III.
0: I'm glad you set the record straight
3: for us on that one. And the important difference is that Israel will be on the losing side in World War Three, Ah, yeah, I missed that, too. The policy of our American government has always been based that Israel is undefeatable. They cannot lose any conflict in the Middle East. This is a big mistake. Now, I admit, up until now, Israel has been victorious against the Muslim nations. This is going to change. Israel has lost the blessings of Almighty God.
0: Yeah, that's right. The reason why—wasn't the reason he gave for that is because of homosexual tourism in Tel Aviv?
3: Let's take a look and see who will be the leaders of the Gog-Magog war, which I believe is the same as Armageddon.
0: Right. Yeah. And
3: who are the leaders of World War Three? Right on. I think you will see that if we look at the leaders, we will see that Gog-Magog is Armageddon right, and not World War Three. Right on. Ezekiel 38, verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Gog. Now, Gog is the leader of the forces. The land of Magog. I believe this indicates that Gog will come from the Russian-Iranian border region. Um, I, I, how, how did you get that one again? The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, Gog comes from Turkey. He is the leader of Turkey. Probably today that would be Abdullah Gul. By the way, let me ask you false prophets, can you identify Gog? If you can identify all the nations in this chaos in the Middle East and that out of this chaos Israel will be victorious, you ought to be able to identify Gog. But I haven't heard anybody say that Abdullah Gul is going to lead this battle against Israel. Okay. But there's no doubt that the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal today is the president of Turkey, and that is Abdullah Gol. Of course.
0: I mean, oh, it's so easy to spot now that you put it that way. You, you remember those old V8 commercials, you know, somebody slaps himself on the head and, go, oh, yeah, I could have had a V8. Wow. I, whew. I, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Ab, uh,
3: Abdullah Gol, yeah, okay. Now let's look at Ezekiel 38, verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am a come against you, O Gog, yeah. the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Right. So the two antagonists in this battle in Ezekiel uh-huh. is God... ...and Gog. Yeah. This is not Russia invading Israel, uh-huh. as the false prophets are claiming. Okay. Now, the... Ch- uh, who, who are... Uh,
0: yeah, I, I I mean, I haven't got a skin in this game. I'm... Um, who are these false
3: prophets that are... Yeah, never mind. The prince of Meshach and Tubal is far more important than the fact that he comes from Magog. The fact is that he is the prince of Meshach and Tubal is mentioned twice... This is very important.
0: Oh, man, my blue highlighter isn't working.
3: Because what we are talking about here is the Antichrist. The Antichrist, as I have mentioned previously, does indeed come from Turkey. He is the chief prince of Meshek and Tubal. I don't believe he is Abdullah Gul, although it's interesting that G-U-L is fairly close to G-O-G. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Yeah, that you know, because, you know, DOG and G.O.D., I mean, you know, if you have dyslexia, those, yeah.
3: I believe in the next year or two, we will see the emergence of the Antichrist in Turkey, and he will become the president of Turkey, and he will lead the forces against Christ himself at the Battle of Armageddon. Now let's look at Armageddon and who the antagonists are in that battle.
0: Yeah, because, you know, that stuff from Ezekiel, yeah, that was really tough to nail down. Matthew 24,
3: verse 27. Now, this is Jesus himself speaking. For as lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So one of the antagonists in Armageddon, as we all know, is Jesus himself, the Son of Man. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, now the dragon would be Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. Therefore, the two antagonists in Armageddon are the beast, the Antichrist, against Jesus the Christ. Uh, Do do you know who all of those people are already? The beast in Revelation is the same as Gog in Ezekiel. Now, let's look at the two antagonists in World... Slow down. I'm trying to write this all down. ...for War Three, because they are operating on the world scene today. And Daniel... Oh, man, hang
0: on. I, I need some duct tape here. Uh, hang on. Uh, okay. Oh, uh, God. Uh, I'm having a hard time keeping up with this.
3: 11, verse 40. And at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him. Now, the last king of the south is Barack Obama. He is going to provoke World War III. He already tried in Korea in November, which fizzled out, but that was the first battle of World War III. The king of the North shall come against him. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Did World War III fizzle out too? <laughs>
0: I need another piece of paper.
3: Him, that is Obama. Like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, ships, and enter into the countries. The two countries are primarily Britain and America and shall overflow and pass through. Now, what we are seeing in the Middle East is not Armageddon. It is not Gog Magog. But rather, it is part of this conflict between communism and capitalism, between the East and the West.
0: Well, Wait a second. I don't even have a category for that. Hang on.
3: Okay, a new pen here. Okay, I got Gog
0: Magog, Armageddon, and World War III. Now we got this new... Ca- oh, man... Capitalism versus, okay.
3: Between the last king of the North, Vladimir Putin, I believe, and the last king of the South, Barack Obama. Please don't listen to the false prophets like John Hagee or Chuck Missler or Jack Van Empey. These people are leading you astray.
0: Yeah, I, you know, uh, Mr. William Taffley, you know, a truer statement you probably have never made. I, I, I amen, I find myself oddly in agreement with you there.
3: The reason they are claiming that what is happening in the Middle East is Gog Magog is because Israel will be on the winning side in that war. But, if I am correct, and that what is happening in the Middle East is World War III, Israel will be on the losing side. American foreign policy has been built around Ezekiel 38, we seem to think that Israel cannot lose. And up until now, Israel has not lost any battle against her Muslim neighbors. This is going to change. And this is the warning that I'm giving you today.
0: Okay, we got a warning here. I wonder if this can go to the back side of this
3: page. Here. Unless America and Israel repent, they will lose this battle against terrorism.
0: Um. What are they supposed to repent of, exactly?
3: And now let's look and see who will be fighting with the leaders in Gog Magog, in Armageddon, and World War III. And again, I think you will see when you look at who is fighting with the leaders that Gog Magog is Armageddon and not World War
0: III. Uh, I messed up. Man. Uh, Okay, um... Hey, can you slow down just a second? I mean, you're just going so fast, Mr. Tapley. Um, what, what, again, does the United States need to repent of? I mean, because, I mean, the, there's a whole battle that's on the line here. I mean, a whole war, I mean, can be won or lost depending on if they repent or not.
3: Don't you think you should tell them what they should be repenting of? If we look at the forces who are fighting with Gog and who are fighting with the Antichrist, we will see that they encompass the entire world. First, let's look at Armageddon in Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth.
0: Oh, he lost me. I, I, oh man, maybe I should pull that page out of
3: the trash.
0: I am so lost.
3: And of the whole world to gather them to battle that great day of Almighty God and all the tribes of the earth. That's what Jesus himself says. All the tribes of the earth will be fighting against Jesus at Armageddon, including, by the way, the nation of Israel. Now let's look and see on Gog Magog, who was fighting with God. In Ezekiel 38, verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the North Quarter, and all his bands. Uh, how do you spell Torgama again? Oh, man.
0: Okay, those of you taking notes, Togarma,
3: T-O-G-A-R-M-A-H. Okay. So we have a lot of people already, and many people with you. And in Ezekiel 38, verses 9, 15, 22, and 23, the prophet repeats, many people. Now, this phrase is Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and Togarma are very interesting. i uh, Yeah, okay. Some people say that this refers to what is developing in the Middle East today. These are all Muslim nations. But even as Chuck Missler admits, none of these nations are immediately adjacent to Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? Um... Okay. Sure. Why did Ezekiel leave out Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, or Egypt? I have no idea. I I hope you know. These are the five nations immediately adjacent to Israel. Are these going to be left out of this upcoming Middle East war? I don't think so. But none of them are mentioned in Ezekiel. Right. The reason is because these nations are symbolic.
0: Ah. And you used your cosmic Catholic peepers in order to discern the symbols.
3: Okay. And the key word here is north.
0: Ah, yeah, that just... um, Okay.
3: Now, I know Chuck Missler likes to say that this is the uttermost north and therefore refers to Russia, but that's not what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says Togarma right. which is Turkey and north is one of the four compass directions and that is what Ezekiel is talking about here Persia is to the east of Jerusalem right Ethiopia or it was in those days Sudan is to the south of Jerusalem uh-huh Libya west. is to the west, west yeah. the southwest So Gomer is to the northwest
0: ah yeah uh, th- no, that doesn't help me. I am still very confused.
3: So you might ask, well, why didn't Ezekiel list a country directly to the west of Jerusalem? And, of course, the reason is, it's because the Mediterranean is due west. So if Ezekiel wanted to give a westerly direction, he chose a country to the southwest, Libya, yeah. and a country to the northwest, Gomer. Yeah. So what we have here in the Gog Magog War is indeed All the nations of the world, north, south, east, and west, come against Jerusalem, just as in the Battle of Armageddon.
0: Don't you think that's quite a jump there? I mean, just because, yeah, never mind. You know, I I apologize. If you spent a lot of money on, you know, like the butcher paper and, you know, the pens and and the duct tape and the glue and the scissors and stuff like that. I, I thought this would all somehow come together in a way that, you know, just gelled in your mind and you were able to, you
4: know, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. All right. Uh, we're up on our, I, I, I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Seriously. I, it's just, whew. Yeah. um If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Uh, my email address talkback at com. Or you can ask me, my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Shmelevans, We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
4: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough.
0: Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to do another good sermon today. It's actually a lecture continuing where we started from yesterday. I mean, you know, I mean, poor Rob Bell. I mean, his book doesn't come out for three more weeks and we'll probably have this thing buttoned up before his book even comes out. and the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon is actually a lecture part three of the lecture series that we began yesterday we played part one and two yesterday by ted donnelly he's a presbyterian minister from uh, from northern ireland Mm-mm-mm-mm. and um the uh, series of lectures is on the Doctrine of Hell. This is part three of uh, four parts, and it's just fantastic stuff, just absolutely fantastic stuff. Good sober, sober look at the Doctrine of Hell. That of the uh, hyperbole or any of that kind of stuff, I mean, just good stuff, and and he's going to continue walking us through the biblical passages on this and uh, any problems that uh, they've bring up philosophically regarding the nature of God, and um, at the end of the series, I'm telling you, you will absolutely be not only convinced that um, that the Bible teaches that there's a place called hell, and then it lasts for eternity, but uh, you, you ain't going to want to go there. You're thinking, gosh, Chris, that sounds like a lot of law. Yeah, I, I know, uh, hell is kind of a law teaching, but the good news is Christ died for our sins, The Lord of Hell is actually our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me kill the music. All right, so without any further ado, here is uh, Ted Donnelly, part three of the uh, four-part lecture series on the Doctrine of Hell. Here we go.
5: We come this evening to the third of four questions that we want to consider together regarding the biblical doctrine of hell. The question before us this evening is, What will hell be like? What will hell be like? It is a most awful subject. I do approach it with a great deal of reluctance and even dread. I am aware of the dangers, the danger of hurting many beloved brothers and sisters here who have loved ones who died without Christ. And I know that for you this may be an intensely painful experience, and I am reluctant to inflict pain. There's the danger of speaking in an insensitive, crass and ugly way, as, sadly, is sometimes done. It would be much, much easier not to think of this subject. But, friends, we must deal with it. We must think about it because it has been revealed to us clearly and extensively in scripture as we have seen and most of all by the Lord Jesus himself we dare not adopt a pious pretense that we are so refined so delicate so sensitive that we could not Stoop to consider such a doctrine, for that would be to cast aspersions on our blessed Savior. We are not more sensitive than he was. We are not more tender of the sensibilities of God's people than he was. And yet he spoke so clearly and graphically about what it will be like to be in hell. The safeguard to which I hope to cling is to stick as far as I can to the teaching of scripture, the words of scripture, the concept of scripture, to try to rein in my imagination, to keep a grip on myself that I or we do not go beyond what the Word of God actually says. We seek simply to to look at the language of Scripture. What does Scripture tell us about what hell will be like? But this may raise a question in the mind of some. People are inclined to say sometimes, is the language of Scripture not symbolical? We are not meant to take it literally, it is figurative, it is metaphorical, it is a poetic description of the reality of hell, and we would agree with that to some extent. Much of the language of scripture is symbolical. Although some of it is to be taken absolutely literally, there are some of the statements about hell which we do not understand with crass, wooden literalness. We are told that the devil is cast into the flames. The devil is a spirit. He does not have a body. So whatever the flames may mean, we cannot restrict them to literal flames. The reality of hell is so far beyond our experience that language simply cannot describe it comprehensively. That's true, really, of most things in life. How could you describe the taste of your favourite food? How could you put it into words? You couldn't. How could you describe what it means to love someone? The poets and the novelists of the centuries have tried. And they've all come far short. Words are not enough. John Calvin says that. He says these forms of speech denote in a manner suited to our feeble capacity a dreadful torment which no language can express. We're quite happy to think of the language of Scripture to a great extent, as symbolical. And yet, and yet, many people today will take that admission to imply that there is no objective reality behind these symbols, behind these pictures in the word. They will say to us, these terrible expressions are just symbols. They're pictures. They're not to be taken literally. Hell is not like this at all. This is just a symbolic representation of it. But friends, that is a complete misunderstanding of what a symbol is. A symbol or a sign by its very nature is always less than the reality. The reality is always more. In Britain we're driving along the road and we see a sign at the roadside and on that sign are two or three small children crossing the road. That is a road sign for the presence of a school. Is that an adequate description of the school? No, it's not. But the school that exists around the corner is much more than the sign. It is not less than the sign. We come to the Lord's table and we eat the bread. And that is a sign and seal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is much more than the symbol. It is a fine symbol. It
0: speaks. Now, this is where I would disagree with him. Um, I don't think that uh, the bread and wine are signs and symbols. But that's uh, for another discussion. It speaks of
5: life, it speaks of receiving, it speaks of eating by faith, but he is more than the symbol. So there is no comfort to say this language is symbolic. That doesn't let us off the hook. That doesn't uh, make hell any less dreadful. It simply alerts us to the fact that the reality is infinitely worse than the worst of the symbols. This evening we want to try to imagine what it will be like to be in hell and I am aiming what I have to say very directly and specifically to those people in our midst tonight who are still unconverted for it concerns you most urgently and directly. And if you do not call on Christ and trust in him, you will go to this place and you will not have to imagine what it will be like in hell, for you will experience what we will be thinking of this evening. On the 8th of July, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preaching in the small town of Enfield, Massachusetts. His famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he preached, the Holy Spirit came upon the people. And one onlooker said the minister was obliged to desist. The shrieks and the cries of the congregation were piercing and amazing. The people started crying out in their anguish and their despair. What must I do to be saved? We have been praying that God the Holy Spirit will work on you tonight. That this will be the night of your salvation. That this will be the night when Christ Jesus delivers you from hell. And you will look back on this night forevermore to all eternity and say then and there in that place, Jesus saved me from hell. And we who are God's people will gladly bear the pain of considering this subject, if only God will be pleased to save you. I want to summarize the Bible's teaching under four headings, and as it happened, Uh, We have alliteration here, we will be considering hell as absolute poverty, agonizing pain, an angry presence, and an appalling prospect. What will it be like to be in hell? In the first place, there will be absolute poverty. And to make our message flow with more impact, tonight I'm going to depart from my normal practice of giving a reference for every statement from Scripture. I'm not speaking tonight so much for Christians who want to have a comprehensive set of notes. I want to be more personal, more immediate than that. You can find these references. You can look them up. I want the Word of God to have its direct impact. The New Testament writers sometimes simply say, the scripture yourself." and that's what we're saying this evening. Hell is a place of absolute poverty. It's clear that hell is a place of separation from God. Christ will say, depart from me, you cursed. He will say of the wicked, I never knew you. Depart from me, leave me. Go far away. Paul says that the lost shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Banished, in that sense, from the presence of the Lord. Hell is a place of separation from God. Perhaps that's why it is so often referred to as a place of darkness. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. If you go to hell, you will be separated from God. Now some of you may not be troubled at that thought. Some of you may say, well so what? Big deal. I'm quite content to be separated from God. I'm content now, living without God. In fact, I would be relieved to be free of God. I would be relieved to be away from his presence. It would be a burden off my conscience. The thought of God troubles me. And the fact of separation from God would be good news. Many think that. But even if we were to leave... God himself out of the picture. Even if we were to neglect the fact that you will be separated from his mercy and his salvation and his son. My dear unconverted friend, let me say to you, you have no idea what you're saying. You say to me, I'm living without God. No, you're not living without God. You're not living without God. You are surrounded and sustained at every moment of your existence by the goodness and the kindness and the provision and the bounty of a merciful Creator. He causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. You feel the warmth and the beauty of the sunlight On your face. And the cool refreshing breeze. On your cheek. Those are God's gifts. You enjoy. The crusty taste of fresh bread. The juice of a ripe peach. The coolness of a drink. On a hot day. Those are God's gifts. You perhaps know what it is to love someone. To have your heart drawn out to them in affection. You have friends. Those are God's gifts. Perhaps your spirit has been enriched by art and literature and music. Those are God's gifts to you. Some of you this afternoon have enjoyed the exhilaration of sport, of bodily exercise, and afterwards of physical well-being, feeling life Coursing through your veins as a strong man rejoices to run his race. Those are God's gifts. You have ambitions in life and goals. You find satisfaction in projects and work. Those are God's gifts. You laugh and rejoice and experience happiness and rest. You lie down in bed at night and sleep. Those are God's gifts. And friends, in hell, all these will be taken from you. All these will be taken from you. You're not living without God. You're indebted to God for everything that makes your life bearable and worthwhile. It's all from God. And to be separated from God is not just to be separated from that, from himself, it's to be separated from all these things. You don't appreciate them. You don't thank the giver. But when they're all taken away, what poverty. More than that, hell is a place where your personality will endlessly deteriorate. And all the dignity that you now have as an image-bearer of God, all your value, all your humanity, will be stripped from you. The key New Testament word here is destruction or perishing. That does not mean annihilation. It means the ruin of all that is worthwhile. Something is ruined so that it is useless for its intended
0: purpose. This is, the pa- this is the wording that Paul uses, I think, in First Thessalonians. Look it up. Talking about eternal destruction. It's eternal ruin. It's a frightening, frightening passage.
5: We, feel we speak of a piece of rubber as having perished. The elasticity is gone. The strength is gone. It is whitened and crumbly and friable and useless. It looks like rubber, but what made it of value, what gave it its identity, has perished. And this is the word that our Bible uses. This is what perishing is. It means that you as a being will become ever more degraded. You will become more contemptible, more loathsome, more horrible more lonely. You will be surrounded by devils and wicked men. They will hate you and you will hate them. Everything in you that is bad will be let loose. Everything in you that is good will be taken away. All your most evil, wicked passions will burn and increase and consume you until you become utterly utterly foul you will be raised to dishonor increasing dishonor that will be your existence what a wretched existence it will be nothing good, nothing beautiful nothing joyful nothing worthwhile a horrible grey, monotone dreariness Unenlivened by a single ray of light or joy. As you fester and stew in your loathsomeness. That's what will happen to you. Think of the most hopeless, derelict you've ever seen in the gutter. His existence is paradise compared to the poverty. The poverty. Poverty of hell. Absolute poverty. But there is something far, far worse. Agonizing pain. Agonizing pain. One of the most common expressions in the Bible about hell is fire. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of Hell, fire. It is better to enter into life lame or maimed than to be cast into the everlasting fire. The wicked shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire. Hell is a place of fire. Now why has God chosen that word fire to describe hell? We'll come back to it later. But one thing that it speaks of is pain. Pain. The claim is often made today that fire speaks of annihilation. That is Dr. Stott's assertion. He speaks of hell as an incinerator. He says the purpose of the incinerator is to destroy, to annihilate to reduce to nothingness that which is put into the fire. And argues that when the Bible speaks of everlasting fire it speaks of annihilation. But the reverse is the case. It's quite clear that fire speaks of conscious, agonizing suffering. The rich man in the parable we're told was in torments in Hades and he asked for a drop of water in his tongue, on his tongue, for he said, "I am tormented in this flame." Wasn't a violation. It was for the purpose of causing pain. In the book of Revelation, we're told of the idolater. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone and the word used is the regular word in Greek for torturing. Fire tortures. It causes the most exquisite and intense agony. Think of the pain of even the smallest burn. Twenty or thirty years ago, I don't know if it's still the case, it was the sort of test of a real macho man that he could hold a flame of a match in his hand uh, there was a figure some of you will remember called Gordon Liddy and his claim was that he could hold a, a, a lighted match against the palm of his hand this, this showed his, his toughness His his manhood, his courage. He could bear a little tiny flame for a few seconds on the palm of his hand. And that was regarded as something exceptional. My friends, what must it be like to be cast into the flames, body and soul, forever? I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means. I can't imagine what it will mean for the resurrected bodies of the damned. But we can be sure of this, that at the very least, it means excruciating agony. That's why the words are chosen. It will be a hideous counterpart of the bush of which we read in Exodus. The bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And the wicked will burn with fire, but they will not be consumed. Agonizing, agonizing pain. In hell, you, my unconverted friend, will be in agonizing pain. Our Lord uses another horrible expression, for he speaks in Mark 9.46 of the worm which does not die, and the fire which is not quenched. He's quoting the last verse of the book of Isaiah. The prophet has been speaking of a new heavens and a new earth, and God gathers together a great multitude of people from all nations to worship him in his temple. And as the worshippers leave the temple, Isaiah says they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Jews were so appalled by that passage that in their public synagogue reading, They did a very unusual and a very Jewish thing. They transposed verses 23 and 24 of Isaiah chapter 66. So that the reading would not end with that terrible 24th verse. And in the Jewish synagogues, and they were very reluctant to tamper with the word of God in any way. But they ended with the previous verse, which speaks of worship and glory for God. In ancient times, it was a great disgrace for a corpse not to be buried. The two things that you could do to your enemy that were the worst things were either to burn his body or to leave it to rot. And those were dreadful fates. But at least when the fire had used up its fuel, it went out. At least when the maggots had stripped the corpse to the bone, they died. But here is a situation where the fire is never quenched, and the worms are never satisfied. And the Lord applies this dreadful picture to the torments of hell. The worm never dies. In other words, in hell there will be something foul, endlessly gnawing at people, eating at them, devouring them, giving them no rest. Most commentators suggest that it may well refer to our consciences. We know a little bit of the pain of conscience in this life, it's terrible. It can be terrible, it can drive people mad, it can lead people to suicide. Many of the people who crowd into the psychiatrist's offices for treatment, for therapy, all that's wrong with them is that they have a guilty conscience. They don't need therapy, they need Christ, and it is the pain of conscience that is torturing them and tormenting them and disturbing them and making them unbalanced. And yet in in this life, our conscience is comparatively hard. And certainly in the ungodly, it is seared, it is insensitive. But it seems very probable that in hell, the conscience of the damned will be sensitized, reawakened, John Flavel writes, Conscience, which should have been the sinner's curb on earth, becomes the whip that will lash his soul in hell. He says, That which was the seat and center of all guilt, now becomes the seat and center of all torment. Young people, if you go to hell, how your conscience will reproach you. You will think in hell, you will remember your godly father. And how every day in your home he led your family in worship. And how he read the scriptures to you. And how he prayed with you and for you. You'll remember your father in hell. You'll remember your mother. Your mother who sat you on her knee and told you about Jesus. Your mother who loved you and prayed for you. And would have given anything to see you become a Christian. Your father and mother who are praying for you now. As they sit here in this room. You'll remember that. You'll remember every time of family worship, every prayer, every plea, every appeal, every example, every church service, every time your pastor preached, every word he said, every conference you went to, every opportunity, every time Christ drew near to you, every time your conscience was troubled. You'll remember it. And you'll remember it and it will eat at you and torment you. Why didn't I listen? It is my own fault I am here. I am to blame for being here. All my opportunities, neglected, abused, and your conscience will be an undying worm that will give you no rest or no peace. And then our Lord says, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's his most frequent expression for the experience of hell. How often have you wept in your life? Really wept. Your heart breaking in desolation, in utter wretched unhappiness with the grief inside you like a big growing weight that you feel is going to break your heart and burst you open till you can't it. perhaps the the time someone you loved died and you wept and you wept bitterly inconsolably and when you were betrayed when you were misunderstood, when you were lonely, weeping. And the word which Christ uses is of an intense
4: wailing,
5: an inconsolable misery. My friend, Jesus says that in hell the tears will pour down your cheeks. Your whole body will be racked with uncontrollable sobbing. You will be filled with bitter, bitter sorrow, guilty sorrow. Not like the sorrow of bereavement, guilty sorrow, shameful sorrow, and all the tears that have ever been shed on this earth since Eden if they could be gathered together, will not begin to compare with the tears of one individual in hell. You will weep far more than all the world has ever wept. You will weep and weep and weep forever. And not only will you weep, But there will be gnashing of teeth. Some suggest that this refers to remorse. That may be the case. But it's often used in the scripture for anger. We read in Job, God tears me in his wrath and hits me. He gnashes to me with his teeth. Stephen's accusers were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And so that phrase may refer to the damned grinding their teeth in rage. Helpless anger. Anger at the sins which wrecked their lives. Anger at the, at the devil and his demons anger at everyone else in hell, anger at themselves for choosing such misery, anger at God, the righteous judge. Oh, I I cannot express this. I cannot express it. Listen to the word of God, agonizing pain. We know little of pain. In the modern world, we've got anesthetics and analgesics, and the science of pain control has been brought to a fine art. Who can imagine the pain of hell, the torture of fire, the inner torment of a devouring worm, enraged, bitter, sobbing? That will be the condition of everyone in hell. Tormented in the flames. The worm does not die. Weeping and weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Will you choose that? Is that where you want to end up? Is that what you want to experience? Agonizing pain. Could there be anything worse? Oh yes. There could. Because thirdly, there is an angry presence. An angry presence. It's a common idea about hell as we've seen. That hell is a place from which God is absent. C.S. Lewis is typical in his book, The Problem of Pain. Listen to what he says. Sin is man saying to God, Go away and leave me alone. Hell is God saying to man, You may have your wish. That's his view of hell. You may have your wish. I will go away. And leave me alone. And leave you alone. Lewis could not be more wrong. He could not be more wrong. God is omnipresent. He is present in all of his creation. And those who are tempted or tormented with fire and brimstone are tormented, we are told, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is present in hell. Now wait a minute, you may say. Did you not say a moment ago that hell means separation from God? Did you not quote those verses where God will say to the wicked, Depart from me, leave me, far away from me, into outer darkness, how then can you say that on the one hand God is separated from those in hell, and on the other hand that God is present with those in hell? Well, the explanation is quite simple. We think of separation in terms of distance. The Bible, however, more accurately thinks of separation. In terms of relationship, not distance. A man may go a thousand miles on a business trip. He is distant from his wife. But if he is a true husband, he is not separated from her, is he? He thinks of her constantly. He wishes he was with her. He looks forward to rejoining her. He prays for her and his family. He calls her whenever he has opportunity. And many of us can testify that we feel closer to those we love, and we appreciate them more, and we value them more highly at times when there is an enforced geographical separation. We are distant, but we are not separated. On the other hand, my wife and I know of a couple who are married and who live in the same home. And they hate each other's guts. Their relationship has corroded and become poisoned. And the presence of the other person is an unbearable irritation and annoyance. They cannot stand each other. As we say, they get on each other's nerves. Their proximity is torture to them. They are relieved when the other person goes out of the house. They couldn't be closer physically. But there is a universe between them. Now you see, my friends, that's what it means to be separated from God. We are, those in hell are separated from God's grace and from God's love and from God's mercy. And there is a great gulf between heaven and hell, but God is very close to them. Jonathan Edwards says that for everyone, eternity will be spent in the immediate presence of God. I don't think I would have dared to say that. But when you think about it, he's right. Eternity for everyone will be spent in the immediate presence of God, but Edwards goes on to say, God will be the hell of one person and the heaven of another. Because in hell he will be present in his anger. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, and hell is the place where God pours out his wrath on the condemned, not just initially, not just in casting them into hell, but forever, personally and actively. Those in hell will see God in his holy fury. They will be condemned to gaze at him and will be unable to close their eyes. And the sight of him in his anger will be intolerably painful. I well remember as a boy those occasions when my father was angry with And how unhappy our home was, and how wretched I felt, miserable in my own heart and soul because something was wrong, I couldn't make his gaze, there was a tension, it was really unbearable, until I'd apologized, until I'd received forgiveness, and then been reconciled. I dreaded the thought of being in my father's angry presence. How much more dreadful to exist forever in the presence of an angry God. What folly it is to say that God hates the sin, but God loves the sinner. A scholar has done a study of 33 places in the Bible where God's hatred is referred to. Twelve of them refer to God's hatred of sin. Twenty one to God's hatred of sinners. The psalmist says, The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And that word abhors is linked with the Hebrew word for an abomination. The psalmist says, The wicked. God's soul hates, he hates them with every fiber of his being. And he tells us that he will express this hatred with appalling fierceness. In Isaiah, God says, I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. In Ezekiel, he speaks of idolatrous Judah. I will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. It's impossible to imagine anything more dreadful. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He tells us that our God is a consuming fire. I think this is the fire of hell. I think the fire of hell is the anchor of a holy God, the burning righteous rage of God. And the prophet Nahum, we're told that God's fury is poured out like fire, a mighty release of wrath, indescribable and unrestrained. And as we've said, people sometimes say, We don't need to worry about hell. It's not literal fire. In hell, they'll be saying, if only it were literal fire. If only it were boiling oil or burning coals. If only it were something as easy and as light as that here is the ultimate horror of hell not the absolute poverty not even the agonizing pain but the angry presence of God the question is asked in Isaiah who among us shall dwell With the devouring fire, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And yet it gets even worse. It gets even worse. For there is an appalling prospect. It will never end. It will never end. It is everlasting fire, everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction. It is the blackness of darkness forever. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jonathan Edwards says, Eternity is the sting of hell torments. We can't take it in. I've tried in these past weeks to to get a handle on it. it. It's too huge, just as we cannot take in eternal life, just as we cannot grasp what it means to be with God forever, so we cannot understand eternal torment. Sometimes we spend a sleepless night. We know how dreadfully long that night is. You look at your watch, then you lie and lie for hours and hours. You look at your watch again and ten minutes have passed. You think, will it never end? Will morning never come? We were singing from Psalm 130, those who long for the morning. And when pain is added to sleeplessness, how long those hours of darkness seem! because I feel so inadequate at describing this, please permit me to give you a lengthy quotation, and it is a lengthy quotation, from a far greater preacher, from Jonathan Edwards himself, from that great master preacher so mightily used. Please bear with me as I read these paragraphs, I'll try to read them slowly, please try to take in what this mighty man of God is saying as he preached his great sermon, the eternity of hell torments. And as he preached, people were converted. May Jonathan Edwards convert you again tonight. May he be God's instrument in God's hands so that he being dead may call to you from the glory and speak to you. Edward says, Consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever, to suffer it day and night from one year to another, from one age to another, from one thousand ages to another. And so, adding age to age, thousands to thousands, in pain, wailing, lamenting, groaning, shrieking, gnashing your teeth, your souls full of dreadful grief, your bodies full of racking torture, without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding from him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain. Consider how dreadful your despair will be in such torment, to know assuredly that never, never shall you be delivered to have no hope, when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing, but shall have no hope when you would rejoice if you might have any relief after millions of ages, but shall have no hope of it. After you have worn out the age of the sun, moon and stars without rest or one minute's ease, you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. After you shall have worn out a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope. Still, the same groans, the same shrieks, the same cries to be made by you, and that the smoke of your torment shall ascend up forever and ever. The more the damned in hell think of the eternity of their torments, the more terrible will it appear to them. And alas, they will not be able to keep it out of their minds. Their tortures will not divert their attention from it, but will fix their attention on it. How dreadful will eternity appear after they have been thinking on it for ages and shall have such a long experience of their torments. The damned in hell, says Edwards, and we close our quotation with this, the damned in hell will have two infinities perpetually to amaze them. One, an infinite God, whose wrath they will bear and in whom they will behold their irreconcilable enemy. The other, the infinite duration of their torment. It will never end. It will never end. It will go on and on and on. Forever and forever and forever. And after millions of years, you haven't begun. You haven't used up one second of hell. Sometimes people bluster and boast about hell. John Stuart Mill said, I will call no God good who sends people to hell, and if such a being can sentence me to hell, to hell I will go. The stupid braggart. And even if at the gates of hell you were to summon up all your resolution and all your courage and all your strength and all your vigor and say, I will bear it. In half a second, all your courage would have melted away and you'd be screaming, screaming for mercy. My friend, that's what will happen to you. You'll be screaming, I can't bear it. But you'll have to bear it, you'll have to bear it for all eternity. It goes on and on. Forever. Supposing we knew that there was one individual in this room who was going to hell. And supposing we knew who that individual was. Supposing there was one person sitting here tonight. And we, all of us, knew that that person was on their way to hell. Wouldn't we be pity? Wouldn't we be looking at them with tears running down our cheeks? Wouldn't we be praying for them? Just the thought of it, just to see them sitting there, a young person, a young fellow, a young girl. And we would look at them and we'd say, they're going to hell. They're going to hell. But there may be many more than one. There may be dozens here tonight who are going to hell you may be going to hell. You're still unconverted. You're rejecting Christ. What more can I say to you? You may say, I don't believe in hell. You may be putting on a bold front as I speak to you now. Well, he's a preacher. That's what preachers have to say. Doesn't frighten me. I don't believe in hell. Listen. Listen. Listen to the voice of the damned who are now in hell. They're saying to you now, I didn't believe, I didn't believe, but I believe now, I believe now. Multitudes have gone to hell who didn't believe that hell existed when they did realize it was too late. But for you, it's not yet too late. Or you may say, I don't think I will end up in hell. A recent Gallup poll discovered that of the population of the United States, those surveyed, 78% thought that they had an excellent to good chance of going to heaven and 4% thought that they might go to hell. Most people think they won't go to hell. But there are many now in hell who didn't think they would go to hell. They were sure they wouldn't go to hell. Jesus says that at the day of judgment there will be preachers and successful evangelists and miracle workers and leaders in the churches who will stand before him with a happy smile on their faces, waiting to receive his well done. And to their astonishment he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, Lord, Lord, We prophesied in your name, we cast out devils, we did many wonderful works. We're not going to hell, but they do. You may say, I have plenty of time. I'm just young, teenager perhaps, healthy, I'm strong. How do you know you have plenty of time? How do you know you'll see another morning? Jonathan Edwards says, The wicked. They're like people walking over a pit on a rotten covering. But in many places that covering is too weak to bear them. They don't know where those places are. And at any moment, any of us could enter eternity. Unconverted person, the only thing that's keeping you alive tonight is the God who is very, very angry with you. Very angry with you. He's just as angry with you now as with many people who are in hell. If you go to bed tonight unconverted, you're in the hands of an angry God. What reason have you to think you'll wake up again? Why should he wake you up again? Some of you may be thinking, but my friends would laugh at me Perhaps there's a little in-group of young people at this conference, and by nods and winks and words to each other, you have coalesced together as a group of young people who laugh at this a little bit, you've been made to come by your parents, and uh, you know that you're a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit cleverer. You're not into this. Perhaps you've made plans even for some activity this evening or tomorrow evening. I don't know. And one of you tonight is thinking, but I need to get right with God. I am guilty. I am going to hell. I need to turn to Christ. Now you think, but. What would the other fellows say? What would the girls say? they laugh at me. It would be awkward. It would be embarrassing. Don't let other people send you to hell. Don't let other people send you to hell. For if you do, you'll meet up again in hell. And you'll say to each other, damn you. Damn you your example your influence. And that night when Christ came near to me, I valued your opinion, and I wanted to please you. And it's partly because of you that I'm in hell, and you'll hate each other for all eternity. Don't let anybody else send you to hell. Some of you may say, well, I'll believe if I have a Damascus road experience. If God comes down from heaven and stops me short and shakes me and converts me, I believe. God's sovereign, isn't he? He's got his elect, none of his elect will be lost. You can't believe unless God gives you the ability, very well then, if I'm one of God's elect, it's up to God. To act and to turn me right, and until he does, I'm going to go on my merry way. I'll wait for my Damascus Road experience. I'll wait for that special moment. That's what the rich man wanted for his brothers. Lots of Christians are very keen on special speakers. They say, now, "If only we could get a special speaker." At our church meeting. well, oh, pastors all right, but get a special speaker. Get somebody from Ireland. That'll do the trick. The rich man said, "Lord or to Abraham, he said, "If a special speaker could go to my brothers, they would believe. A speaker not from Ireland or Great Britain, but a speaker from eternity." Supposing you could could advertise that for a church meeting. Next week, special speaker from heaven. What was Abraham's reply? They have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't listen to the word of God, if they don't believe the word of God, they'll not believe the special speaker. Neither will they believe. You ask for a special experience. I offer Christ to you now. And he will have you. If you will ask him. What more? What more should God do for you? What right to ask for something else? But perhaps you're saying... I love the good things of this life. I don't want to give them up. Friends, do you remember the dreadful, dreadful agony, almost a holy sarcasm of Abraham's words to the rich man in hell? Some remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Oh, with what mockery did that phrase come upon the soul of that damned, tormented being? My good things, my good things. Yes, I thought they were good things. I valued them as good things. And Abraham says, what do you think of your good things now? Were they still good to him in hell? Did he still value them in hell? Was he still glad of his wealth and his luxury and his self-centeredness? No, no. It was the price for which he had sold his immortal soul. My friends, I plead with you. I plead with you. If you're not converted, please, please turn to Christ now. What more can I say? What more can I say? God has shown you tonight what hell is like. I cannot believe you want to go to hell. I cannot believe it. But if now, at this minute, you do not call on Christ to save you, you're saying, I choose hell. Are you going to say that? God's speaking to you. God's striving with you. God's warning you. But more than that, the Lord Jesus Christ is pleading with you and calling you and commanding you. And at this very moment, hundreds of prayers are arising to God's throne from this room for you, that now you will come, that you will turn your back on the sin that will only damn you and ruin you forever, and you will come to the gracious Saviour. Christ is here. Believe on him. We would do anything to see you converted. Anything we could, short of sin, anything. If our right hands would see you converted, we'd see them cut off. That's not hyperbole. Christians, wouldn't you agree with me? Don't we mean that? Don't we mean that? We would do anything, anything, anything to see you converted. We do not want you to go to hell. Some of your parents here, how do they feel at the thought of their children in hell? What would it mean to them if you were to come to them tonight before bed and say, Dad, Mom, I have trusted Jesus and he saved me. It will be one of the greatest nights of their lives. Oh, please, please listen to the pleading of Jesus the Savior. He is so kind and so gracious, and He'll receive you, and He'll forgive you. He'll wash you clean and make you safe forever and ever, that you'll be holy and happy and look forward to an eternity. Of bliss and joy and glory in heaven. Lord Jesus, please break the hold of the devil on people now in this room. We've been singing, Come Down in the Day of Your Power, and make them willing. Friends, let's pray. Lord our God, you delight in mercy. You are greatly glorified in the salvation of sinners. When a sinner trusts in Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. Lord, we are absolutely at an end of ourselves. We have spoken ourselves empty. We are helpless. We can do no more. But you are the Almighty God. And even now in these moments you can enter hearts and make people truly sorry for their sin, truly repentant, and you can show them Christ. And Lord, you can cause them to flee hell. Dear Father in heaven, hear the prayers that have been offered in the past years and months and days and this very evening. And as this message has been delivered, Oh, Lord, hear our pleading. Hear our cry for those we love. Lord, it would be worth more than all the earth to us to see them converted. Thank you for these dreadful warnings. Impress them, we pray, on the hearts of the lost that tonight, even at this moment, there may be those here who will cry, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, and grant, O God, that they may not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray for your glory. Amen.